on May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount+. Plus. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome another edition of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney with my co-host eric raskin i am kira mulvaney uh eric across the land and around the world right now i reckon there are a fair few betters still hung over on this monday morning cursing their luck after placing a substantial bet on canelo alvarez beating avni yildirim by fourth round knockout on saturday night only to watch joel diaz ruin their dreams by stopping the contest a second before the bell rang to start round four. It's a thin line between success and failure. In sports betting, as in life, it's a cruel, cruel life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that is what is known as the betting world as a bad beat. Oh. Yeah, that's that's the term for it. If you had Canelo to win by KO in round four uh, or had bet on a range of rounds, like four through six, that is a bad beat. Uh, that said, for every bad beat, there's also a good beat. There's someone out there who bet Canelo KO3 at about 6-1 to mm-hmm. one, or Canelo somewhere in rounds 1 through 3 at about 2-1. to one. Now, as it happens, Kieran, you're talking to a better who really didn't care if Diaz had waited two more seconds. I took both a bad beat and a good beat. Uh, at one sports book, I placed a small bet on Canelo KO3. And at a different sports book, I placed a slightly larger bet on Canelo KO four through six, and I was set to win the exact same amount either way, as long as one of those ah. came through. Uh, and then on top of that, I had a parlay bet made earlier in the week. I had two basketball bets that one parlayed with Canelo by KO in any round. So uh, so I'm rolling in it now, Kieran. I, I could probably retire <laughs> from podcasting right now if I wanted to. So knowing you and the size of your bets, what, you earned, what, 25 bucks from that parlay? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can maybe buy a meal. <laughs> and not, a, n- not at a fancy restaurant. <laughs> right, Applebee's, exactly. something like that. Yeah, there you go. Nice. But, like, only the entree. <laughs> yeah, maybe a soft drink. <laughs> there you go. Small. Small, definitely small. No <laughs> refills. Uh, all right it is a packed show this week um we will be joined by the headliner in our next showtime championship boxing card which takes place on march 13th that is of course unbeaten super middleweight david benavidez uh we will take our first look at the march 10th quadruple header on showbox highlighted by the latest outing from power puncher brandon lee uh, we have plenty of news to talk about as well highlighted by the fallout from triller of all outlets, winning the right to stage Teofimo Lopez's mandatory defense against George Cambosos. But first, let's catch up on this past weekend's action, some of which we just alluded to. Uh, The action kicked off in New Zealand, where COVID-era social media star Joseph Parker outpointed countryman and former amateur rival Junior Farr over 12 rounds of an aesthetically displeasing bout. Uh, it continued in Los Angeles, where Anthony Durrell and Caron Davis fought to a split draw in a 168-pound contest. And it concluded in Miami, where, as we mentioned at the top, the sport's biggest North American star and the current consensus pound-for-pound number one, Canelo Alvarez, strolled to a win against Avni Yildirim in a horrible 
mismatch. Uh, Yildrim was barely active at any point in the fight, throwing allegedly 105 punches, landing just 11, seven jabs and four power punches over the course of three completed rounds and hitting the deck in the third. Uh, Joel Diaz, his trainer, the first telling his man at the end of the third round he'd give him one more round to prove himself, obviously didn't like the lack of enthusiasm in the response from his fighter and pulled the plug then and there, um, as we were joking earlier, right as that fourth round was about to start. Look, Eric, we knew this was a mismatch going in. We said it would be. Even so, uh, how disappointed were you with Yildirim's effort? And, and, and how much of what happened on Saturday night was purely the result of the alphabet bodies elevating undeserving boxes to world title challengers? And how much is simply down to the brilliance of Canelo? I mean, look, Yildirim's not anywhere near Canelo's level, obviously, but he didn't appear to be a terrible fighter beforehand. Uh, if you've got a guy like Canelo, who's the best in the world, but he wants to fight four times a year... Are we just going to have to accept that mm, at least once a year we're going to get mismatches like this? Yeah, my position all along on this fight was it sucks. It's a terrible matchup. It shouldn't be happening. It barely qualifies as a sporting event. This is why the world would be a much better place with no sanctioning bodies or at least with every starfighter refusing to pay them fees and telling them to get lost. But... I'd rather see Canelo in a February mismatch in between his December and May bouts than not see him fight at all between December and May. That's been my take. I mean, I'm not paying extra for this fight. I get it as part of my subscription. So, sure, why not? Something is better than nothing. In this case, something proved to be barely better than nothing. Um, You know, (laughs) Yildirim, I I don't hold his effort against him. He just isn't on Canelo's level. He he isn't within three levels of Canelo's level. Uh, He showed up. He tried a little bit, uh, but there was no path to him winning. Just none at all. Zero. So I'm inclined not to rip on Yildirim's performance. And I am inclined to say a few nice things about Canelo. You know, hate on this fight all you want. It did give us one more opportunity to watch Canelo Alvarez perform while he's in his absolute prime. Uh, At least I assume he's in his absolute prime. I wouldn't be totally shocked if we still haven't seen the very best of him, considering his trajectory the last several years. Uh, But in any case, as long as the opponent isn't running away, uh, see Murad Hakkar against Bernard Hopkins. Uh, As long as that isn't the case, a fight like this gives us a chance to watch a great fighter show off his gifts, and and Yildirim did that. He stood in front of Canelo and let Canelo show off his body punching, show off that slick one-two that dropped him. You know, if not for the alphabet group giving orders, maybe Canelo's people would have found a slightly better opponent for this keep-busy bout. But, you know, getting back to what you were asking, if you're fighting four times a year, as Canelo intends to, I have zero complaints about one of them being a showcase mismatch. You fight once a year, then I'm going to be annoyed if that one fight isn't a real fight. But Canelo, it's all good. He looked great. He padded his record. Yildirim got out of there before any lasting damage could be done, one presumes. And we'll see Canelo back in the ring in just 10 weeks, apparently, in uh, in what on paper looks like a real fight. Uh, so so let's talk about that. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of Canelo Yildirim, promoter Eddie Hearn confirmed what we all knew, that Canelo's next defense will be on May 8th against Billy Joe Saunders. Safe to say that in and out of the ring, Britain Saunders is not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, but <laughs> this is, on paper, a far more interesting and challenging obstacle for Canelo than what we just watched, right? Uh, in theory, Far more challenging. Um, 
you know, on, on paper, Sanders has all the attributes to give Canelo hell, really. He's a southpaw. He's a, a, a defensive, skillful boxer with good footwork who moves around the ring. He's pesky. He's annoying. He's, he's got an awkward, just an unusual style. Uh, he also won't stand right in front of him and trade with him unless Canelo makes him. Um, in this respect, he's, he shares a lot of the attributes, or at least some of the attributes, uh, of Arislandi Lara, who, who Canelo for him seven years ago already, believe it or not, and um, and quite a few people thought uh, Arislandi Lara deserved the nod against him. Mm-hmm. But and there are some similarities too, maybe to Austin Trout, who who also you know ran Canelo pretty close. Um, but I think that the Canelo of today is a very different proposition to the one back in 2014. Um, I also think Sanders is a different boxer to the one who beat David Lemieux in 2017. But in Sanders' case, I don't think it's to his benefit. It feels as if Sanders has plateaued, mm-hmm. like his footwork isn't as effective at 168. Um, while, you know, as you alluded to, when he said we might not actually have seen the best of Canelo yet, it just feels that he's just going from strength to strength. Um, in the immediate aftermath of that Lemieux win, I, I did think that Saunders was maybe the, the Ken Norton, potentially, to, mm. to Canelo. Um, but I'd make Canelo a good-sized favorite now. But but yeah, but I think that Canelo's going to be the favorite against probably anyone except maybe Artur Bedebiev. Um Saunders will be the underdog. Um, he will almost certainly be the most reprehensible human being on the card. <laughs> but he, but he is a legitimate and worthy title challenger. I mean, he's faced and beaten a string of good, good opponents. I, I don't think it'll be a good fight. Um, but Sanders' styles and skill ensure it'll have intrigue. And there is more than an outside chance that, that he pulls off the upset here. So, um, yeah, uh, it is. It's a... A much, much better fight, a fight that people have been talking about for years, unlike Canelo Abney Yildirim. And like you said, look, people have talked about a fight with Callum Smith for a while. We had that. People have talked about a fight with Billy Joe Saunders for a while. We're having that. If the price of that is to get poor Abney Yildirim in the middle, then like you said, so be it. Yeah, and I, I agree with all of that, except that I might be inclined to say that Saunders doesn't have any more than an outside chance uh, of, of mm. the upset. My, my early hunch, without having really thought too hard about it, is that Canelo makes this one look easy, too, because he's just that good. But, you know, it's certainly a credible piece of matchmaking. It's not a mega fight, but it's promotable. And you do get to position Canelo as the ultimate babyface because yeah. Saunders is yes. so obviously a heel in this one. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I, and, I, and I think that you know my inclination is somewhat to agree with you, or certainly more than I would have thought a, a few years ago. And and that's like you said, that's all on Canelo. Yeah. That's you know, I mean, there are some very good fighters around one, at one sixty eight and thereabouts, and I don't think we'd make anybody south of one seventy five even really even money against against Canelo outside of Bedebiev, which I know has been your fantasy fight for a while. Right. Um. I, that's just the way that that's just what happens when you have somebody who is as good and as dominant as Canelo is right now. Yep. All right. We will have plenty of time to talk about that fight between now and May 8th. Um, But we've got plenty of action between now and then, uh, beginning with a couple of interesting bouts to look forward to this week. Um, Thursday, March 4th, uh, Ring City USA returns. And after basing its first three cars out of the wildcard gym in Hollywood, California, it shifts operations to Huaynobo, 
Puerto Rico in a card that is headlined uh, with the previously scheduled but COVID-delayed junior middleweight bout between Sergei Boachuk and Brandon Adams. That bout is scheduled for 10 rounds. The following day, Friday, March 5th, Clarissa Shields returns, uh, fighting out of her native Flint, Michigan, to headline an all-female pay-per-view against unbeaten Mary-Eve DeCare in a junior middleweight unification. Uh, are you surprised to see that Clarissa has wound up on pay-per-view rather than, say, Showtime, where she's been for many of her fights? Uh, how optimistic are you that this will sell enough for everyone involved to be able to walk away happy? Well, I'm not terribly surprised by where it landed just because Clarissa had been rumbling a bit of late about being mm-hmm. unhappy. Showtime hadn't given her a date during the pandemic. Uh, and I don't know the behind the scenes of exactly what was right. offered and whether she was asking for more money than it made sense to give her or whether Showtime dropped the ball to some extent. I think the network gave her a good platform and plenty of promotion prior to this. Uh, and of course, they had planned to televise this very fight before the pandemic ripped apart the schedule for spring 2020. Right. Look, Clarissa is outspoken, always has been. If she feels slighted, she'll let you know. And it can therefore <laughs> be tough to tell if she has actually been slighted or if she just feels slighted. Um, right. You know, I wonder, is this the end of Shields and Showtime or is it just a temporary blip? It sounds bad based on the quotes, but uh, nobody has said anything that quite feels to me like a permanent burning of a bridge. Um, all that said, I don't see how this card does all that well on pay-per-view unless Shields has a bigger, more loyal fan base than I realize and or women's boxing has gotten bigger than I realize. She's growing. It's growing. But my sense is that she and it haven't grown enough to convince all that many people to part with 30 bucks although it is only 30 bucks that's probably the Mm. right price point for this card um look we'll see at a certain point in your career it's worth testing the pay-per-view waters and and finding out exactly where you stand so she'll get some answers there my guess is that she'll come crawling back to showtime afterward but um after tyson jones drew two or three times as many pay-per-view buys as I would have expected, I have to humbly admit that I could very much be (laughs) underestimating the upside here. Yeah. All right, so that's what awaits us this coming week. Uh, The following week, Showtime is back with, uh, as is the routine so far in 2021, a Wednesday Showbox followed by a Saturday Showtime Championship Boxing. We'll preview the entire SCB card next week, which is also when we'll make our picks for that card and for the Showbox main event. But this week, we'll take an early look at the Showbox card. There are four fights in total. We mentioned the Brandon Lee versus Samuel Taya main event last week. We now know the undercard fights as well. So, Kieran, uh, run it down for the people. What are we looking at on this undercard? New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions. You never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles. Now streaming only on Paramount+. Plus. Yes! 
Well, and another example of Showbox showcasing really very good prospects. The six boxers and the three undercard bouts have a combined record of 63-1-1. and um, uh, We kick off with eight rounds in the super featherweight division. Thomas Velasquez, who is 10-0-1 with six KOs, and he's trained by Stephen Fulton's trainer, Hamza Mohammed, taking on fellow unbeaten Victor Padilla, who is 22 years old. Born in Vieques, Puerto Rico, but now fighting out of New Jersey. Padilla is 8-0 with seven KOs. He needed just two minutes and 46 seconds to stop Israel Suarez Almeida in his last outing in January 2020. Uh, that's followed by eight rounds of lightweight action between Philadelphia's Stephen Ortiz and New Orleans' Jeremy Hill. Um, COVID-enforced inactivity, or a lack thereof, may be a factor here. Uh, Hill who is six feet tall, which is tall for lightweight, uh, he was able to fight four times in 2020, whereas Ortiz did not fight at all last year. Uh, Ortiz is 11-0 with just three KOs. Hill is 14-0 with nine KOs. Uh, the co-main is another eight-rounder, this time between super featherweights Misael, I think it's pronounced, Lopez, 11-0 with five knockouts, and Jordan White, 10-1 with eight knockouts. Uh, Lopez was born in Sonora, Mexico, and raised in Colorado. White is a resident of Washington, D.C., and like everyone else on the undercard, had an extensive amateur record before turning pro. He is the only man on the undercard with an L on his record, but that L came against Adam Blue Nose Lopez when White was just 4-0 and Lopez 6-0, so there's absolutely no disgrace there. Um, so a strong undercard then, uh, and it's a fascinating main event, um, which, as we talked about briefly last week, it pitches knockout artist Brandon Lee, 21-0 with 19 KOs, including 12 in the first round. Um, we've been yearning to see Lee, uh, who has both power and promise, up against someone who can stretch him a little he may have just that in Samuel Taya. He's 17-3-1 with seven KOs. Eric, you mentioned last week when we touched on this that Taya just may have what it takes to give Lee a few rounds. Tell us about his background and his record and why you think he at least can avoid being another KO1 victim. Yeah, I'm glad you said can avoid, not will avoid, because it's always <laughs> possible with Lee that he might get anyone out of there in one round. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, Taya is 17-3-1 with seven KOs. Not the most intimidating record, but only one of those four blemishes is a bad one, in my view. Uh, in his fifth pro fight, he lost a four-round majority decision to a guy who was 4-0-1. No shame there. In 2016, eight-round split draw against a decent fighter in Demond Brock. 2018, eight-round majority decision loss to Montana Love on Showbox. We've seen Love a few times. He's a quality prospect. The only bad loss was in 2019, uh, a lopsided eight-round unanimous decision to 10-4-1 Treshawn Wiggins. Wiggins hasn't won in three fights since, so that's a tough one to explain. Still, you look at some of Taya's wins. He handed Oshaki Foster his first loss on Showbox in 2015, he stopped undefeated David Gonzalez in the first round in 2016. He narrowly decisioned Kenny Sims Jr. on Showbox in 2018. And he beat Sonny Fredrickson by majority decision two fights ago. Taya is a bit inconsistent, but he's proven capable of defeating B-level prospects. Uh, and very importantly, he has never been stopped, and I don't believe he's ever suffered an official knockdown. So... I'm not sure if Taya will be a test for Lee in terms of threatening to defeat him. He might, but I wouldn't bank on that. I would, however, bank on him probably giving Lee some rounds, maybe even going the full 10. If Lee stops him, that's a statement. If he stops him in a round or two, the way he's been stopping everybody else, that's an enormous statement. Um, 
we all want to see Lee go some rounds. Taya is on paper the right opponent to make that happen. Um, and, and by the way, just a, a quick note about this card as a whole. Taya is from Liberia, but fights out of Philly. There's a very strong Philadelphia flavor to this show. Yeah. Uh, you know, in non-COVID times, this show box would be a perfect fit for the 2300 arena, the, the former ECW <laughs> arena. Um, but uh, yeah, you have Taya, uh, Ortiz from Philly, and Velasquez from Philly. If I still ate cheesesteaks, I would indulge in one a week from Wednesday <laughs> while watching this card. Instead, I shall endeavor to enjoy shredded impossible meat with vegan cheese on a hoagie roll. And I'm, I'm sure Joe Frazier is throwing left hooks at me from the grave just for uttering some of those unmanly words. But so be it. Yeah. Hey, I like the idea of, uh, of, of your version of the Philly cheesesteak. I'm all over it. So I'll let you go. All right. From from a distance, we shall uh, toast to each other with our fake meat, fake cheese uh, sandwiches. Actually, and you can even have real cheese on yours if you choose to. That's true. That's true. There you go. See, look at me. Look at me. Living, Living the high life. Yes. Right. <laughs> That's it. Um, yeah, look, as we mentioned, that March 10th show box is followed by a March 13th Showtime Championship boxing card. And our guest this week will be the A-side of that broadcast's main event when he takes on Ronald Ellis at the Fight Sphere in Mohegan Sun. He is 23-0 with 20 KOs, with wins against the likes of Ronald Gabriel, Jalian Love, and most recently, Aroma Alexis Angulo. He is one of the top super middleweights in the world. He is, of course, David Benavides. David, welcome and thank you for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. How you doing, guys? Um, I'm doing um, I'm doing very well right now. You know, I'm actually just in the gym right now. Um, I'm about to get a training session in after this interview, but everything is going pretty good, man. I've, I've been here in Big Bear for about 11 weeks. I've been working extremely hard. Um, and, you know, I'm just looking forward to March 13th and putting on a great performance. Well, we're looking forward to it, too. And uh, we want to start by talking about that fight that you have coming up on the 13th. Uh, you're facing Ronald Ellis, as Kieran mentioned. He was fortunate to get a win last time out when Matt Korobov suffered an injury. A couple of fights earlier, he lost a close decision to DeAndre Ware. You are the big, big favorite in this fight. Uh, but he'll know that this is maybe his last chance at the big time. So he's almost certain to give it everything he has. How much of a challenge is it to face an opponent you're widely expected to beat, but a guy who knows he can't afford to lose? You know, uh, honestly, for me is um, right now, since I feel like Ronald Ellis, you know, he knows this is his last big opportunity. So I'm taking this fight very serious. You know, it's for a title eliminator. So everything is on the line for me and everything is on the line for him. You know, if he beats me, his, his career skyrockets. So I understand that, you know, so I'm, I'm, preparing for this fight like if it's a world title fight so I'm work, working extremely hard you know to make sure that I'm the best David Benavides that's presented on March 13th so that's why I made the decision to come to Big Bear man you know I feel like um Big Bear I'm, I just get to a different place you know physically and mentally so I'm 100% ready for this fight um I know you know uh Ronald Ellis is probably going to be you know as prepared as me so you know I'm ready to go in there and put it all on the line but I feel like the way I'm looking right now the way my speed and my strength feels. You know, I feel like it's going to be an early knock uh, early knockout for me. Yeah, and you know, being the big favorite as you are, I'm not sure if you watched the Josh Warrington Mauricio Lara fight a couple of weeks ago, but does that sort of result kind of help remind you you can't get overly comfortable against any opponent? You got to take everyone seriously. Yeah, definitely. You know, just seeing that fight, you know, just makes you remember that anything can happen in boxing, so you have to be extremely ready for anything that comes your way. But um. 
like I said, I feel like I'm on a different level right now. You know, I, I just turned 24 years old while I was out here. I turned 24 in December. So I feel like I'm getting that much closer to my man's strength. I'm, I'm peaking, you know, my body. So I feel, you know, very good, very good, you know, physically, mentally focused. So I'm, I'm ready to go in there and get a, put on a great performance. So last time around, as we mentioned, you know, you defeated Romar Angulo, but you lost the title on the scales. And, and you said afterwards that a lot of that was an issue that a number of fighters have had, the, the, the particular difficulties of dealing with the COVID environment, especially during fight week. You mentioned that you've been in Big Bear for a while. Is that part of your whole process to make sure you don't have anything like that kind of issue again for this fight? Yes, definitely. You know, I could I could blame it on um, I could blame the weight loss on the COVID protocols and, you know, not just not being ready and not knowing what to expect. But at the end of the day, I still lost the title. So I have to be professional. That's why I left to camp so early. I think by the time I leave here, it's going to be 13 weeks. So, you know, so that's more than enough time to, you know, to make weight or uh, have a great camp. And right now I'm like 174, 173. So I'm not too far away from from weight. Um, and I still got basically two whole weeks left to make weight. So, um, you know, I wanted everything to be perfect. I wanted my stamina to be perfect, and I wanted the weight to be perfect. So that's that's one of the main reasons why I came to Big Bear so early. You are a big, strong guy, even for a super middleweight. Is it just, uh, do you think that inevitably at some point, 175 pounds is in your future? Yeah, I think, um, I think 175, probably maybe in two or three years. You know, right now I feel like, what I had to do was get away for a while, you know, just get away from my home. Um, you know, I just had my, uh, I had my baby, you know, before I left and during the fight camp for the last fight, you know, and my girlfriend was pregnant, you know, she was eating a lot. So everything she was eating, I was kind of eating. So I kind of made it the decision to, to leave to Big Bear and, you know, just have the diet and all that. But, you know, with this diet, you know, I've been extremely dedicated to the diet for about two and a half months already. And I feel like uh, I have no problem now making 168. So, um, you know, I'm going to be here until I get all these fights made. You know, the, there's Caleb Plant, there's Charlo, there's Canelo. There's a lot of great fights to be made at 168. You know, and I promised all my fans I'd give them these good fights, these great fights, and they're waiting for them. So I feel like until I get, you know, these, these fights, I don't want to move up to 175. I feel really comfortable right now, so I feel like I'm going to stay at 168 for at least two or three years more. Well, speaking of your weight, uh, going back uh, about 10 or 12 years with regard to your weight, uh, you've spoken in the past about how you were a big kid. You weighed about 260 pounds at age 12. Uh, while your much skinnier brother, Jose, was already being looked at as a future champion. What motivated you back then to, to get back in the gym at that age? How hard was it to, to get into shape? And how much confidence has it given you in later life in that, you know, whatever challenges you face now, you know that you've already overcome the doubters and, and turned a tough situation around like that? Well, you know, the situation with the weight was, I had been training my whole life since I was three years old. And then when my brothers, he had got signed at 17 years old, they packed up their stuff and, you know, they pursued my brother's professional career. And me, I was just, you know, I had been training my whole life at 12 years old. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to just stay with my mom. I'm going to just be a kid. You know, that was the only time in my life I didn't have to train. So, you know, overindulging in food, you know, eating everything I wanted to eat, not working out. And then one day I just looked at myself. I'm like, damn, I don't even recognize myself no more. I've gained like 100, near to 100 pounds. So, you know, I made a decision to go back to to leave, go to California with my father. And that was basically the motivation just to lose weight at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I started losing weight, you know, a year, 50 pounds. The next year, another 50 pounds. So I got to a point where I lost the weight. I'm like, okay, what's next now? You know, at that time, I still had about 12 years, 
I don't know, like, uh, like 10 years boxing experience. So I'm like, well, you know, I might as well, I might as well do what my brother's doing and try to try to make something out of myself. And, you know, I feel like I, I was a little bit not accomplished more, but it was a little bit harder for me to get to where I'm at because basically I was virtually, you know, unknown and I wasn't anybody in boxing at all. So I really definitely had to work from the bottom all the way up. All the respect I earned was from the, the sparring, the, the sparring sessions I had in the gym at the wild card, you know, the, all, all the best gyms all over California. And then I started getting in there, you know, with uh, 14, 15 years old with Kelly Pavlik, you know, uh, Latif Coyote, Kid Chocolate. Then I came to Big Bear. I sparred Golovkin. So, I mean, I kind of that was basically my amateur career right there. Just learning with these great champions and actually just having to be in here and surviving because I would not allow myself to get hurt or I would not allow myself to get dropped or knocked down you know, in front of my dad, because, you know, if I would have got hurt, my, you know, you know, I would have never heard the end of it from my dad. You know, my dad was very strict right. and he expect he had high expectations of me. So I think, you know, just having everything was perfect. Just having my brother and my father around, they just, they, um, they made me become what I am today because of how much was expected of me. And, you know, I'm very grateful for them because if it wasn't for them, I don't know where I'd be at in my life or in my career right now. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for my dad and my brother. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Sort of following up on that, I was curious about whether at any stage there was this kind of any kind of friendly rivalry between you and your brother, because, like you said, you had gloves on your on your hands from three years old, or whether you were just supportive of each other and just on parallel paths at all. Yeah, no, it was a rivalry, but it wasn't friendly. You know, me and my brother—that's <laughs> how we get along. We are. Uh, <laughs> it was. It's um. You know, now it's a little more calmed down, but before when we were younger, we'd get in the spar- in the gym, we'd have sparring sessions days without talking to each other but honestly that's what made me more tough and that gave me the killer instinct and that taught me how to defend myself in the ring because what what I learned from that is if my brother's not going to take it easy on me then nobody else is going to take it easy on me so um, Ah. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm also grateful he was there to teach me a lot like that and um, from now you know um, you know he's very supportive of me he's he's, there's never been no jealousy he's never been no rivalry you know he's always supports me like I how I support him you know, talking of um, of uh, Jose, we haven't seen him since his his fight with Terence Crawford. Um, any idea of where he's at in terms of coming back in the ring? Well, right now, you know, he just had he just had a daughter right now, so you know, I can't really tell you where he's at or how when how soon he wants to come back. But you know, I feel like just knowing about when you have a you know a son or a daughter, you know, it just motivates you to another level. I just had my son, right. so I mean, I'm expecting him to come back soon. I think he just wanted. to settle himself because he uh he moved to washington he just moved by me so he was you know enjoy the few months he had with his daughter right there and i think he's going to come back in camp soon so so expecting to come to see him back soon okay well congratulations on all the various expansions of the benavidez family uh, recently very exciting stuff um one more question for you about your childhood because uh, i understand that ever since you were little you loved watching boxing on tv i'm curious were there any boxers you particularly enjoyed watching was there maybe a fighter you ended up styling yourself after there was a lot of fighters i, I loved watching um i'll give you a list of them you know uh my main main favorite one was prince nasim Ahmed. You know, I loved him. He was, he was an amazing right. fighter. And he was just a great showman. Also, I loved Tito Trinidad, you know, Oscar De La Hoya, Marco Antonio Barrera, um, Roy Jones Jr., of course. So it, I wasn't really trying to take 
one particular style. I was just trying to take stuff from everybody and then just put it into my style because I feel like even if you try to imitate somebody, there's never going to be another Prince Nassim. There's never going to be a Roy Jones Jr. And then also at the end of the day, I didn't want to be like nobody else. I wanted to be like myself, you know? So I feel like I've, I've done a pretty good job in doing that. But even still to this day, man, I, I, I watch a lot of countless fighters, you know, and I like, I still like stealing stuff from other fighters and applying it to my own game. So I feel like in, in order to become the best in boxing, you got to evolve no matter what. You got to always try to learn something new. You got to try to learn how to do new stuff. And, um, you know, to this day, it's, it's worked. And, you know, I'm, I'm still watching. I'm still a fan of boxing. If I wasn't a boxer myself, mm. I would want to be a commentator or, a, you know, just working in the field of boxing. You know, I, I just love boxing so much. Cool. Well, you, maybe you have a future in that. I guess we'll see. But uh, any any chance we'll ever see you attempt a Prince Nassim uh, flip over the top rope <laughs> under the ring? No. no, I tried to do that. I tried to do that when I was like seven years old, and it did not end well for me. So that was the last time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, some of the other guys who are around now, you mentioned earlier uh, in and around the 168 pound division. You got you got Charlo, you've got Canelo, uh, Caleb Plant, all these kind of guys. There's there's a lot of you guys all kind of like circling around each other. How do you feel you match up with some of these top other top guys, and how confident do you feel you might get one of them either this year or next? I feel like I would do. I'm the only one that could beat Canelo right now. I feel like, mm. and the reason of that is because. You know, you know, I'm taller, you know, I'm stronger. I'm a natural 168 pounder. I have fast hands, you know, probably faster than him. And, you know, I'm getting more experience as the time goes by, too. And and also, too, I just, I just want the opportunity that I'm hungry to show the world what I'm really made out of. And I feel like sometimes that's that's the only thing that a fighter needs, to, you know, to show the world what he's really made out of. I feel like right now where I'm at, you know, in a training camp, you know, it's perfect for me in Big Bear because, you know, like I said, my mind, my mind and my body, they go somewhere else. And I go to another place in my mind that I haven't been to in a long time. And I'm just extremely focused right now. But I feel like I would beat any of those top guys. I'd beat, I would beat Charlo, I'd beat Caleb Plant, and I'd beat Canelo. The only thing is that I need the opportunity to get, get in there and show the, show the world what I'm really made out of. And I guarantee you, you guys will not be disappointed because all those fights would be amazing fights. Well, the next step for that is March 13th against Ronald Ellis. We wish you all the very best for that. Thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations again on, on your newborn son and uh, all the best for the future. And we hope to have you back on the Showtime Boxing Podcast soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys' time. All right. That was really fun. David's a good talker. Uh, yes. I, I wasn't just humoring him saying he could have a future in boxing broadcasting. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad we were able to line him up to come on the pod. Uh, okay. It is time now for the news, and there is no question what this week's main event is. Teofimo Lopez's mandatory defense of one of his lightweight belts against George Kambosos went to a purse bid last week. In case anyone is unfamiliar with a purse bid, with that term, it's what happens when a mandatory fight can't be successfully negotiated. So the Alphabet Group orders a purse bid, basically a blind auction where anyone can bid on the fight. Everyone submits a bid. The highest bid wins. Lopez's promoter, top rank, bid $2.315 million. Matchroom USA bid $3.506 million. And Triller, known in boxing at this point for staging the Mike Tyson, Roy Jones thing a couple of months ago and finding great success with it, uh, blew everyone away with a bid of $6.018 million. 
Uh, Triller does have another thing scheduled for April featuring Jake Paul, but the suits at Triller are indicating this will not land on that card, but will still likely be paired with another celebrity thing. Uh, Okay, so uh, Triller gets the fight to put on pay-per-view. Top Rank and ESPN lose Teofimo for one fight. Uh, one not overly attractive fight, mind you. Seems like it's not the end of the world for anyone, but there has been quite a bit of drama. Bob Arum is mad at Matchroom and Eddie Hearn. His stepson, Todd DeBuff, is mad at DeZoan. Teofimo Lopez seems mad at Arum and DeBuff. And meanwhile, Lopez and Cambosos are about to make a lot of money. Uh, And actually, in the short term, Top Rank gets a high six-figure cut of Lopez's purse. It's an interesting story, no doubt, and it could have some ramifications. That said, and I, I think I've touched on this in the past, I hate it when the boxing media and the Twitter folks spend more time reporting on and opining on business dealings than they do on actual fights. Uh, There were whole so-called emergency podcasts last week on a purse bid. Uh, A lot of people devoted more time to this than to Oscar Valdez knocking out Miguel Burchelt. Look, it, it warrants coverage. We're talking about it. We might end up spending 10 minutes on it when all is said and done. So we're not innocent here. Um, But let's try to keep some perspective. Fights and fighters. That's what matters most. Fights and fighters. You know, in in 2021, Mm -hmm. people still talk about the rumble in the jungle and Leonard Hearns and Corrales Castillo. Nobody talks about that time Andre Ward sued Dan Goosen or about Haseem Rahman almost fighting David Aizan until main event sued and, and won. So... I just urge the boxing world to keep things in perspective and remember what matters. Uh, now, with that said, I shall tee you up, Karen, to <laughs> potentially make us guilty of devoting too much time to this. Uh, but anyway, so the the floor is yours. What do you make of this purse bid and, and its fallout and all this? Well, yeah, I mean, my, my first sort of thing is, and you, you talked about this, for all the Sturm and Drang, um, on one level, I've, I've, pretty much everybody wins here in the short term. Um, like you said, Top Rank gets paid money, uh, I think it's 20%, isn't it, of Lopez's purse, for yeah. doing absolutely nothing, <laughs> right. for being in no way involved with a matchup they obviously didn't want to be involved with in the first place. Um, like you said, Lopez and Camposas make a boatload of money. What's really interesting to me is, is suddenly this whole business of... You know, claiming that all these freak fights with the Logan Pauls and the Jake Pauls and, and whatever, um, have, you know, the, the claim has been, oh, no, these things have value because they bring non-boxing fans into the sport. And by and large, that's utterly bogus. But for one night, that argument might have some merit, actually. Um, you know, when Eddie Hearn tried to meld a, a Logan Paul spectacle with real boxing, he, he picked Billy Joe Saunders, right. who's never going to be. <laughs> compelling enough to bring non-fans into boxing um, and Devin Haney who can blow hot and cold and on that night blew sub-zero um, <laughs> this will presumably pair some kind of celebrity nonsense with one of the sport's best and brightest stars someone who rarely fails to be entertaining um, who's skillful who's charismatic he's going to be probably at the top end of the sport for a while um, that makes it actually interesting to me if this were actually going to be a regular feature of these carnival acts that we would get you know, for one night only away from the usual platform, one of the absolute best and brightest so that non-boxing fans go, oh, holy cow, that's what boxing's about. I want to follow that guy. I'll right. follow him back to ESPN. Then I would be a lot less get off my lawn about all of this nonsense. Um, 
uh, it would be it would be great. So on one level, I'm actually quite enthusiastic about it, and that's one of the things I'm you know that's interesting to me. As for what it all means about the relationship between Top Rank and Lopez, I don't know. And for all the time that's been spent talking about this, nobody knows. I don't think even Lopez and Top Rank know how this is all going to work out, um, because the promoter has the fighter under contract for three more years yet. Um, what is a bit interesting is that this is the second of Top Rank's top stable members who Bob Arum has basically said we're tired of losing money on your fights right. um, but it's sort of one thing to say that to Terence Crawford whom I love and have loved for years but who still doesn't really get the idea of trying to sell his fights there's another to say it to Tiafimo try to stop Tiafimo doing media for God's right. sake <laughs> um, and the guys just come off the back of one of the biggest wins by a, by a young prospect slash contender in a long while at one in fight of the year so it doesn't seem the best time to insult him, um, even though there's a valid point to be made about the saleability of this particular bout. Um, so, so that seems to be a, a bit of non-diplomacy. You know, I, I get the impression that basically what's going on is top rank is trying to do a bit of a market correction here, right? When DAZN started, they just blew the market out of all proportion by give, by throwing money at fighters and. DAZN is trying to come back from that now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think perhaps seeing that, maybe top ranks being like, look, we could pay you when it's worth it, but for fights like this, we're just not going to overpay. They're just not saying it very diplomatically. But now Triller has come in and is apparently prepared to drop ridiculous sums of money, which suddenly blows the market up all again. So that's the part that's kind of interesting from a business perspective to me. But for me, I think the, the, the key thing is, is in the short term, we may actually get well, all these defenders of this celebrity boxing have been saying for a while, a real, very, very, very high caliber boxer exposed to non-boxing fans. We could actually make ourselves a whole bunch more boxing fans as a result of this. Yeah, and and you make a, a really interesting point about uh, Triller coming in and doing like DAZN did, throwing a lot of money ra- around and what how that shakes things up, uh, at least in the short term. I mean, th- this is part of a pattern in boxing where a new player comes in wants to make a splash, overspends, and and it really can throw the whole pay scale off for a little while. Uh, you know, before DAZN did it, PBC was the one that came along and did that. And yeah. before them, you know, Rock Nation did it for a little while. And the list goes on. Some of them last, some of them don't. Um, it's great for Lopez and Cambosos in the short term. Sometimes it hurts fans because it leads to other fighters pricing themselves out of the fights we mm. want to see. Because, you know, if Teofimo Lopez is getting $4 million plus to fight Cambosos, why should I accept $2 million for a more dangerous fight? So that's something to watch for, a potential downside to all this. And it'll also be interesting to see if Triller is still involved in boxing in a year or two. You know, right. maybe, maybe they're here to stay. Uh, maybe they're going to change their minds after the first show that they put yeah. on that doesn't sell like Tyson Jones did, which might turn out to be the show, depending on what they pair it with. So, yeah, there's some interesting things happening here. Uh, I think we managed to keep ourselves to maybe slightly under 10 minutes talking about it. So we okay, are, on, we are so only... we're not hypocritical. Exactly. We're at, or at worst, we're mildly hypocritical, which I can live with. <laughs> I can live with that too. All right. <laughs> so let's move on to the news undercard. Uh, here's what's on the menu this week. 
Another recent top-ranked boxer, light heavyweight Gilberto Zerdo Ramirez, has signed with Golden Boy, uh, who hope to have him back in the ring by, quote, mid to late spring or early summer. The delayed Jamel Herring-Carl Frampton Jr. lightweight bout is now slated to take place April 3rd in Dubai, according to Dan Raphael. Dan also reports that the Tyson Fury-Anthony Joshua heavyweight clash is at the stage where lawyers are poring over the contracts, despite complaints from Fury earlier in the week that the fight was no closer to being done than it was a year ago. Uh, Dan writes that the agreement is for a two-fight deal with the first bout taking place at a site to be determined in June or July. Come on, Wembley. Come on, Wembley. Yeah. <laughs> Narrator, it won't be at Wembley. Uh, and finally, Top Rank has been widely lauded for the way it brought boxing back after the onset of the pandemic with its fight series in the bubble at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Now, Jake Donovan of Boxing Scene is reporting that after 26 shows, Top Rank wants to move on and start bringing boxing back to live crowds, beginning with Emmanuel Navarrete against Christopher Diaz on April 24th, tentatively slated for Kissimmee, Florida. Kieran, any thoughts on any of these items? I'm nervous about jumping the gun on ending the bubble. Um, I, I think Top Rank deserves the benefit of the doubt after the way they've handled everything over the past, whatever it's been, seven months or so. I think they've done a really excellent job and they've brought boxing back uh, in, in a very sensible way. But oh, we're so close now. I mean, the vaccines are rolling out. Mm -hmm. I, oh, I hate to jump the gun now. I mean, I get it, right? I'm, t I'm tired of sport not having spectators too. It's not the same. I miss crowds. I miss being at events, but... Oh, it makes me a bit nervous when we're so close um, to being out of this. The one thing I'll say, though, about that is, you know, people wanting to bring crowds back uh, and, and about the, the Fury Joshua news. The United Kingdom is running rings around everyone with this vaccine distribution. I think something like 28 percent of the population has had at least one shot. Hmm. Um, government has indicated that crowds will be allowed back to Premier League games by the time the season is, is wrapping up in May. Okay. So, if that first Fury Joshua bout is slated for June or July, and it still winds up in oh, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> we'll know all that crap about, oh, all we want to do is hold it in front of a live crowd. It's just crap. Um, the, the one possible logistical uh, obstacle is the European Soccer Championships, the final and two semifinals at least, and possibly more, will be held at Wembley. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the date of that, so that might be a bit of a conflict. But the way things are going in the UK, if we, it looks like if they really want to, they can put that fight on in Wembley in June or July. Uh, the way things are going with vaccine distribution in, in the UK, I would think. So we'll see what the commitment is to the British boxing fan as opposed to, oh other considerations hmm. all right so so the narrator who moments ago said it won't be at wembley uh may 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 have to walk that back which would be wonderful if that's the case um and uh completely off topic um it's never stopped me before uh in <laughs> in approximately 1990 uh teenage eric raskin and his three brothers were in Miami, visiting their grandmother, and uh, took a bus to Orlando to go to Disney World. Uh, parents free. It was uh, a questionable decision by those parents, uh, especially pre-cell phone, no easy tracking apps and all that. But uh, anyway, on said bus, I had my first exposure to a real live drunk. Uh, some, some completely <laughs> drunk Florida man was on the bus. Uh, and one of the stops was Kissimmee. 
And every, oh. every time the driver announced Kissimmee, this guy shouted, Kissimmee ass! And <laughs> it was somewhere between hilarious and horrifying, but I've never been able to hear the word Kissimmee the same way since that incident. I'm pretty sure that a somewhere between hilarious and horrifying is in fact the Florida state motto. <laughs> That's what the license plates all say now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They like just decided it. to just like really lean into that. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. It's tweet of the week time, and honestly, I had no idea what the tweet of the week would be until late on Saturday night. Uh, in the event, uh, Canelo Yildirim did offer plenty of uh, options in that regard, even if it didn't offer much in the way of entertainment in the ring. Uh, the one I picked. Look, out of context makes no sense at all. And if I have to explain it to you, there's no point explaining it to you. You won't get it. You'll just have to go back and watch and see what I'm talking about. I could have picked any number of variations on the theme. But the one I picked was from at Cheeks 8888. Dude had one job. Ride his bike around the stage. Yes. <laughs> I have no real idea what the hell was going on there with that big performance before Canelo's ring entrance. I, I think the dude with the bike is what really confused the hell out of me. But yeah, look, seriously, come on, man. If you're going to weird up the joint, at least stay on the damn bike. Don't fall off it when Canelo is walking to the ring. <laughs> yeah, there there were a lot of different things going on uh, during that ring entrance. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, I was not the target audience, I suppose. Let, let's put it that right. way. Um, and, you know, the, the reality of it is I can be like, who the hell is this J Balvin? I don't need to see a J Balvin concert. Uh, but... <laughs> I also think it's important to step outside myself and say yes. not not everyone watching is washed and out of touch with current music. And so, like, I I thought about, like, what if 25 years ago ACDC had performed Thunderstruck yeah. live during an Arturo Gatti ring walk? I would have thought that was pretty cool, while some boxing writer 30 years older than me might have been like, this sucks. I only like Frank Sinatra. So, I, I, you know, I, I try not to hate on what passes for music these days just because I'm unfamiliar or I don't care for the genre, uh, although this certainly did sound like crap to my ears. But just the, um, the I saw a lot of people commenting on Twitter about get it over with, get to the fight. This has taken too long. The entrance did take a couple of minutes longer than an entrance should. But because it wasn't that late yet, Right. I, re I really wasn't that annoyed by it. You know, the, the undercard was over early. They vamped for a while. I'd heard about all of the Ryan Garcia commentary I could handle. Uh, it wasn't even <laughs> it wasn't even 1030 yet when the rings walk when the ring walks were starting. So it's all good. Uh, you know, when it's midnight already and, you, and you're dragging out the show with 17 national anthems and a mini concert uh, and or you're, you're showing fighters napping on couches while you wait for an MMA fight to end, uh, then then I will lob F-bombs at you. But at 1030, uh, especially when we all know the fight ain't lasting 12 rounds, I say, go ahead and waste 10 minutes of my time. I'm, I'm OK with it under these circumstances. Yes. And, and there were people certainly complaining about, you know, yet another delay to a Canelo ring entrance mm -hmm. um, or Canelo, but it, there wasn't actually really a delay they had been told the main eventers that they were going to walk at 1040 and and when you've got and I think that I think these Canelo fights are treated like pay-per-views right when it was a, a like a Showtime championship boxing okay the undercards finished early the main eventers can go out but like if it was a pay-per-view it'd always be you're going out at this time we recognize that you have this much time to prepare and that's what you have in your mind. So we're not going to mess that up. That's mm -hmm. what happened with Canelo Golovkin too, right? It's just that right. all the 
undercuts went so fast that we right. had to do all that vamping. Um, but yeah, <laughs> all that said, yes. The perhaps, you know, perhaps it might have been nice to have gotten that out of the way before poor Yildirim was standing in the ring all by himself. <laughs> True. But, but you were there for Ahmed Kelly, and this was nothing compared to Ahmed Kelly. <laughs> yeah, that was that. How long was that? I believe that was something like eleven minutes between when Kelly entered the ring and and when Hamed actually uh, came through the ropes. So, uh, yeah, the, it's it's all relative, <laughs> I suppose. But uh, again, this uh, the the what time of day it is or night. Yes. When when it's happening is is, is huge. Right. I would have been as grumpy as anyone if it was like five minutes to midnight and they were doing this crap. But uh, as as you said, they had a time when they were supposed to walk. It was not supposed to be before about ten forty or so. And actually, I think they they still did they come in. A, before, uh, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. They were just like, all right, let's get to it. So yeah, I'm I'm okay with it. Yeah, indeed. As for the UK viewers, well, that's all. <laughs> right, <laughs> true. Yeah. Um, let's conclude with our top five list segment. Uh, last week, Eric gave us his list of the five biggest upsets, apart from Douglas Tyson, to have taken place outside the United States. We had a couple of comments about that. Uh, the one and only matchmaker Ron Katz gave a thumbs up to three of them, Turpin Robinson, Ali Foreman, and Rockman Lewis. Um, and at Davey Toronto suggested two others, uh, Ramirez Whitaker and Stevenson Dawson. I don't know about Ramirez Whitaker it's weird right in a sense it wasn't an upset because neither man actually won right and the whole larcenous nature of it sort of throws the whole like was it an upset or not sort of out the window and honestly I don't know actually whether it was uh, an upset uh, you probably you may well know better than, than me whether how big of a favorite Whitaker was going into that but Stevenson Dawson was certainly an upset and a big one and and the nature of the of the upset made it a big one I'm not sure it counts as an all-timer if it had been Dawson's first loss yeah but his previous fight had been a loss to Andre Ward he'd lost to Jean Pascal a bit before that so I don't so it's a, it's an upset definitely but not I don't think it deserves to go on your list or, or even in the also, also rounds. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, Ramirez Whitaker doesn't quite count because that result has as large an asterisk next to it as any boxing result ever. Um, so even though, yeah, I do believe Whitaker was favored there. Um, I don't know that he was an overwhelming favorite. And certainly, yeah, that whole result is so bizarre. Uh, Stevenson Dawson, it fits the category much better, but... Uh, I agree with you. It, it isn't anywhere near the top five. Um, and we didn't get much feedback beyond that about anything we missed, oh. which I take as an indication that my list was pretty much perfect. A plus for me. Yep. There you go. Now it's on to next week's list. Kieran, are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be, so no. <laughs> okay. Here it is. Your assignment for next week yes, is to list the all-time top five greatest purse bids in boxing history. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Exhale. That would be that would be that would be a fifty-five minute emergency podcast. Exactly. Special. Emergency podcast. You have to do it right now. Come up with them off the top of your head. Five greatest first bits. No, we're not going down that route. Here we go. Every top five list that we've done so far has been historical, uh, and we're going to buck that trend next week. Next week's list is a current list. It involves only active fighters. But if it were an all-time list, some of the entrants on it might be Larry Holmes' jab, Tito Trinidad's left hook, Julio Cesar Chavez's left to the liver. I think you know where this is heading. Your assignment 
is to rank the top five weapons in boxing right now. And and I want you to get specific with it. Like, I wouldn't accept George Foreman's power. That's a little too general. I, I, I would take George Foreman's right hand. Uh, or, you know, I wouldn't accept Floyd Mayweather's defense, but I would take Floyd Mayweather's pull counter, a specific weapon that incorporates gotcha. his defense. So there it is. Top five specific weapons in boxing circa March 2021. All right. That's good. That'll be fun. I, I We can definitely go with that. And I think that'll definitely get a lot of response. And uh, and the week after, I will challenge you to take it a step further. And I will challenge you to come up with the five best fights of the 22nd century. We'll spin it from the past <laughs> to the present to the future. Um, let's see. 22nd century. That's why I'm so... giving you an extra week or two to think right. about. I appreciate you giving me the heads up. But uh, I've already done the math. There won't be a planet Earth in the 22nd century. So, so, But these fights could take place on Mars. We are starting towards settling Mars. So I've got a lot of thinking to do. It's true. Yes, there you go. Perseverance against uh, against one of the other orbiters there or something. Yeah, there you go. Anyway. Um, <laughs> right. Well, that's a, a, a bit of a dud finish to the podcast. But apart from that, uh, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks again to David Benavides for a, a really terrific interview. Um, we will be back next week for a full breakdown of his fight with Ronald Ellis, as well as the rest of the Showtime Championship Boxing card. Uh, we'll also be looking ahead to the mouthwatering, much-anticipated rematch between Tito Gonzalez and Juan Francisco Estrada. Uh, until then, thanks for listening. Stay docuseries on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus.